The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Paralyzed with fear, I felt my heart racing so fast that I thought it would explode straight through my chest. Here we were, completely defenseless, completely vulnerable, and utterly terrified. My precious son, Paul, was lying next to me. What was the intruder going to do next? Was he going to rape me or maybe kill us? I didn't have the strength or opportunity to overcome him. He had the power and he had the control. By Jane Carson Sandler from Frozen in Fear, the true story of surviving the shadows of death. Well, Happy New Year, Murder Bookies. Welcome to the first episode of 2024 of the Murder Shelf Book Club podcast. And I am your host, Jill. This is episode 80, Survival Mode, from Frozen in Fear, the true story of surviving the shadows of death by Jane Carson Sandler, part one. Murder Bookies, I have an announcement. This is some wonderful news. RomCon 2024 is in Nashville. May 31st to June 2nd, 2024. If you have not gotten your CrimeCon badge, please use my code. All lowercase letters, murder shelf. Yeah, you'll save 10%, and I really can't wait to see you again. You know, this time we should, like, do a meetup or something. I mean, I'll have to check the schedule and see what's going on, but maybe we can do something. But remember, you can always find me hanging out, having some food and drinks later in the evening. So again, use my code, save 10% murder shelf when you buy your CrimeCon 2024 tickets. I just, or we just celebrated the Murder Shelf Book Club's fourth anniversary, 26 books later. That blows my mind. And with your help, I think we have grown and improved and gotten more substantial and many of the goals that we've set. So looking forward to 2024 and what's coming up next. I always say that I can't do this without you, and new murder bookies are welcomed and appreciated. I hope you all had a restful, peaceful, healthy new year. I know I sure needed a little downtime. The stress was beginning to set in. Back renewed, and I'm ready to tell you more incredible stories, stories you may be unfamiliar with, which I actually prefer. There are just so many victims who need to be remembered. This story, Frozen in Fear, is very close to my heart because I've met our author a number of times, and I know what a classy, smart, and caring woman she is, Jane Carson Sandler. Jane is a survivor who was raped by the East Area Rapist in her home back in 1976, early in his reign of terror. And this is not his only moniker. He's also known as the Visalia Ransacker, and the original Night Stalker, and the last one associated with his crimes, chosen by true crime author Michelle McNamara, the Golden State Killer. You may be familiar with this case because there's a zillion podcasts and documentaries, but not like this one. Most have focused on the serial killer, and I certainly did when I started this podcast with my first book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, 
the one Michelle McNamara wrote. I shared my profile of the Golden State Killer, written before Joseph D'Angelo was exposed as the malignant piece of crap that he is. But this one, this is a little different. This trilogy is from the perspective of the East Area Rapist Survivor, giving her a voice, giving them a voice, not the perpetrator. I hope to impart the impact on his rape victims, on their lives, faith, marriages, and families. Now, this will follow Jane's story and how survivors are so much more than they were on the worst day of their lives. Later, I will expand this to include some other strong women who have come forward about their experiences as well. I've also integrated true crime investigative journalist and true crime author M. William Phillips' handling of Jane's story in the book she wrote with him, She Survived-Jane. You may recall him from the TV show Dark Minds. Phelps writes that his goal is to, quote, showcase survivor stories from their point of view, end quote, which perfectly aligns with my own. While I definitely focus on the crimes, investigation, and psychology of the perpetrator, reflecting in many of the books I've highlighted, here I'm focusing on the victims, their stories, how they survived, how they chose to live and live fully and may we all take something from their stories and learn. But we have to kick this off right. This is our True Crime Book Club. And since California is our location, I am bringing a delicious chorzo quiso fondita dip with chips for us to enjoy. Recipe coming from Cast Iron Keto. I like to keep our appetizers pretty simple to make. And if you heard me, this is a keto recipe as well, helping out those with their New Year's resolutions. So in a pan, you brown your chorzo sausage in avocado oil. Then you add diced bell pepper, white onion, some spices like chili powder and sea salt, lots of Monterey Jack cheese, and some pico de gallo. You bake for 20 minutes, and we are ready to scoop and dip. Easy and delicious. Now, if you like it hotter, you can swap out the bell pepper for a poblano pepper and add a little zip to it. Now, I've paired this quiso with Antonio Diaz Martin's Spain Tempranillo from my favorite wine club, Naked Wines. This dark fruity red is medium bodied with hints of plum, cherry, blackberries, and licorice. Very dry. This Tempranillo isn't oaky like a roja. And this finish is silky with enough acidity to clean the palate. So it definitely elevates the spice of the quiso, and I really, really like this pairing. This bottle is a 2022, and it's available on Naked Wines for about $12 if you become a Naked Wines angel. The regular price is $22. So now we have our book, we have our case, we have our snack and drink, and we are ready to begin book club. Bon Appetit Murder Bookies. We begin with life in 1976, Citrus Heights, California. Every morning, Jane would see her husband Bill off to work and then enjoy some quiet cuddle time with her three-year-old son, Paul. And it was a bright and early ritual that they enjoyed. Jane would reflect, quote, My early morning time with Paul was very special to me, as I wouldn't see him all day, end quote as she was in college working on her nursing degree, and Paul went to daycare. This day, October 5th, 1976, 
It was about 6.30 a.m. and Bill had just left the house. Hearing the garage door reopening, Jane wondered what he'd forgotten. Bewildered when she saw this light coming down the hallway towards her thinking, quote, why the light and why is he running? End quote. A jolt of adrenaline erupted when she realized the man wore a ski mask and this was not Bill. And he pointed at her with a large butcher knife. A scream erupted from Jane's throat as he pushed the knife into her chest, leaving Nick's and her skin oozing blood. Through clenched teeth, a muffled voice commanded, Shut up or I'll kill you. I just want your money. And he would repeat this many times over for the next hour and a half. Mid-scream cut off, she was terrified and confused. Had he snuck in as the garage door went up when Bill was pulling out? Jane prayed, hoping that maybe he was just going to rob her and leave her, and she was utterly terrified for Paul, a toddler lying next to her. Jane was not a large woman who could launch a counter-assault against a man waving a knife at her, not that would even be an option with her young son there. He flipped her over, tying both her hands and feet with shoelaces, gagging and blindfolding both Jane and her son. Slowly, ritualistically, he began tearing sheets, leaving Jane wondering again, what did he plan to do with the sheets? Quote, is he going to hang us? End quote. She wondered, trembling. The fear intense and left Jane paralyzed, knowing she was at his mercy, that her small child was swept up into this nightmare, completely vulnerable. He began rampaging through her dressers, with him then walking in and out of her bedroom. She couldn't defend her baby boy as questions shot rapid fire through her mind as Jane wondered what he wanted. What was he after? What was he looking for? Returning, he began to untie her ankles, and with dread, Jane knew he was after more than money. She reached over to touch her son, only to realize Paul was gone. Quote, oh my God, what's he done with my son? Where's Paul? Has the intruder hurt him too? Is he alive? I thought maybe Paul was moved back to his bedroom so the rapist would have more room to maneuver on the bed while he raped me, End quote. Trying to speak through the gag, he again hissed to shut up or he'd kill her, and she believed him. What would become a regular part of his assault, the rapist used lubricant, stroking himself as he kneeled on Jane's back, her arms still tied behind her, still gagged. He forced her to masturbate him, and this is when she realized how small he was, the size of a button mushroom, very tiny. Emotionally overloaded, in complete shock and desperately fearful, Jane mercifully doesn't recall most of the rape itself. Finished, he must have brought Paul back into the bedroom, threatening to kill them both if he heard a sound. She heard him in the kitchen, refrigerator door opening, pots and pans rattling. What was he doing? Eating? Oh, how sick! Time lost all meaning, but it felt like Jane had laid there for hours as it grew quiet. Finally, she spit out the gag and managed to pull the blindfold down with her tongue. And Paul was next to her. And oh, thank God, he was all right. She noticed light coming through the blinds in the enveloping silence. No noise in the kitchen. Had he gone? She knew she had to get up and move, but was so terribly frightened. What if he wasn't gone? If she made a noise, would he come back and kill her? Finally, the frozen inertia was no longer an option, and she found the courage, 
to tell Paul to be very quiet and to follow her. With her ankles retied, she hobbled back down the hall, Paul tucked behind her, having no idea what she faced around the corner. Slipping out the sliding glass door, the pair maneuvered across the yard to the side gate, with Jane screaming for help. A neighbor came quickly, aghast, and took them into her home, and the police were called, and then Bill. Arriving quickly, Jane was inundated with questions as she wondered, what, wait, was this real? Was it a bad dream? Was I really just raped? And she thanked God for sparing hers and Paul's lives. They were both okay. Jane told the officers the rapist wore a black ski mask. He had put a knife to her throat and threatened to kill them. He wore black or a brown leather jacket and had black high-top sneakers. But this was not easy for her. Speaking to the police was difficult because they were men, and a man had just raped her. Jane wanted nothing to do with men. She hated men. But more questions and more questions. Finally, a very kind female detective named Carol Daly arrived, taking Jane to the emergency room in Sacramento, California. From this point forth, life would be forever divided into her first 30 years of life in a time before this brutal rape and afterwards. Prior life in Citrus Heights, California had been enjoyable, fulfilling, as Jane was working to complete her degree at California State University and focus on her husband, Bill, and motherhood. They lived in a lovely suburban neighborhood with manicured lawns, parks, gardens, streams, and bike paths with perfect year-round weather. While Bill and Jane were homebodies, they did occasionally dine out for some Mexican food, thinking, what could possibly go wrong? Quote, Jane never had any indication while she and Bill went through their last days of that summer and early fall, eating out, spending time at home, the park, movies, enjoying the routines of life, that a budding serial killer was watching them, stalking, searching for his next victim. End quote. And he found Jane. Every detail of a crime holds some importance, which is why law enforcement questions are repeated over and over. What later became significant was where Jane and her family lived, their type of house, and the layout of the neighborhood. A 1,200-square-foot style ranch home, they had three bedrooms, two baths, and a two-car garage. A living room, kitchen, and room to eat in, with the backyard enclosed by a six-foot-high fence. This was Jane and Bill's first home. Police would come to conclude that this was the exact kind of neighborhood and house with a wood fence and vines, providing some kind of cover that was the rapist's calling card. He may have picked neighborhoods before actually choosing his prey. This was the 1970s, with disco music, platform shoes, and long hair, and Jane writes that the hospital visit was another nightmare. After an hour, Detective Carol Daly had to leave, and Jane was alone, feeling like hours were dragging by. Haggard, looking torn and battered, Jane's hair was a matted mess, her face streaked with tears. Where the rapist had jabbed her in the chest with the tip of his knife, blood had seeped through her top and dried. And this combination elicited stares from those around her, making her feel like she was some kind of weirdo. There was no comfort from speaking to a rape counselor because they didn't exist yet. Jane just waited, alone in shock. 
Finally, Jane was taken into an examination room where a male doctor began to assess her. Fear and anxiety and discomfort welling up. A man's touch was not welcomed. A man had hurt her. And this triggered a flood of tears, followed a minute or two later with joyful smiles as the emotional horror of the sexual assault swung like a pendulum to the joy of having survived the ordeal at all, and then back and forth. Following the exam, Jane was given a particularly painful shot of penicillin to prevent her from catching a sexually transmitted disease, and the morning-after pill to prevent an unwanted pregnancy, a horror Jane hadn't even considered until that moment. As traumatic as the hospital visit and examination had been, Going home wasn't a particularly attractive option either, but it was the only one. Once, home had been Jane's safe haven, place to go, relax, cuddle into with warmth and love. And now it was, quote, the place where I had been physically, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually violated. Would I be safe? Would he return? End quote. A Christian, Jane closes this chapter with, for I am the Lord your God, who takes a hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Isaiah 41.13 As unsettling as all this was to read, this verse did give comfort, which is why I am including it for all of us. Fast forward 10 years. By 1986, this prolific rapist was known as the East Area Rapist, or EAR and was described as, quote, the most prolific serial rapist in California history, a methodical killer, the worst sexual predator in California history, evil, a monster, the original night stalker, a skilled burglar, a sex pervert, a sexual psychopath, a paranoid schizophrenic, a crafty, ingenious, psychotic sexual deviant, a sociopath, and a rapist-turned-killer. End quote. Now, Jane also cites an early March 2013 article by true crime Mavern writer Michelle McNamara, who described Ear as, quote, the most violent serial criminal in American history, end quote. This gives you an idea on the depth of the evil which Jane was forced to endure. The East Area Rapist began his reign of terror on June 18, 1976, in Rancho Cordova, California, at approximately 4 a.m., at a residence that wasn't terribly far from where Jane and Bill lived. In a 2016 interview with the FBI, the very first victim, Phyllis Hanneman, shared her memory of the rape, saying, quote, I didn't hear him come in. All of a sudden, there was someone standing in my bedroom door. I thought it was my dad at first. He drives at weird hours, and he might have come in early. But it wasn't my dad. He had a ski mask on and a huge knife. I don't remember exactly what he said, something to the effect of, you know, don't scream. And then he tied my hands behind my back using a cord he brought and one of Phyllis's fabric belts. He put a cut over my eye. But I didn't realize I had been cut. I just remember feeling extremely threatened, end quote. He would gag Phyllis with a white slip to keep her quiet. Quote, after it was all over and done with, he went through stuff in the room. He took money out of my purse. He took some coin books and a piece of jewelry. 
I laid on the bed, well, it seemed like forever, forever. I was waiting for the door to close, and I never heard the door close. I was so afraid to get up to see. Finally, I said to myself, okay, this is do or die, end quote. Well, Phyllis did not die that night. She did survive. A remarkable woman, Phyllis Hanneman, goes on to explain that she doesn't hold this against him, which might seem remarkable or impossible to some of us. But she believes there is something wrong with him and that he is not wired properly. Phyllis decided to take her control back, deciding that holding on to hate in your heart is not a good thing, and letting this go liberates. Her emotional scars remain. In the aftermath, the assault caused her to become less open, more closed off. For example, if she's in a crowd, even with people she knows well, Phyllis remains on the periphery, never in the mix. She can't stand to have anyone standing behind her. She wants to keep her eye on everyone. And she was not like this before the rape. When the anniversary comes around, she might wake up upset, not even realizing it's June 18th. And then it dawns. More aware of her environment, she would get that tingle up her spine and know someone was looking at her, snapping around, and seeing no one. Fortunately, as time has passed, this has become less of a thing, but she has survived and moved on with her life, letting go of the hate. As 1976 was coming to a close that December, Chris Pedretti's life shifted when she became one of Ear's victims, too. With her family out at a Christmas event, 15-year-old Chris was attacked in her home while playing the piano. Terrorized, raped multiple times, she survived the ordeal. But she came to associate the piano with the assault, abandoning the instrument and never playing again. For years, Chris blocked out what happened that night, but later began to process her anguish and fear. Gardening Hands in the dirt helping beautiful, fragrant flowers to flourish has been her solace. She also runs a support group for victims of sexual assault, hosting in her home and online. Flashing ahead for a moment, during Chris's victim impact statement at the sentencing of the East Area Rapist, she stressed, quote, He didn't win. I am not a lost girl. I want to make that clear, end quote. Chris also spoke out for other rape victims. After feeling ashamed and guilty for what D'Angelo inflicted on her, she emphasized, quote, It wasn't my fault. It was something that was done to me, not because of me. Through this experience, I have learned how utterly important it is to be able to express out loud that the shame and guilt belong to the rapist, not the victim. The mere act of stating it aloud to others is liberating in a way that others cannot comprehend. End quote. Yes, I do not think we are here yet in our towns, in our communities, and I think we can do better for our rape victims. So I hear Chris. I hope you hear Chris. Her strength and her poise are obvious in a video interview by Spectrum News One that Chris gave in July 2023. The link is posted on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com under sources, including the transcripts of victim impact statements. So please check that out on my blog. On April 2nd, 1977, Kathy Rogers was attacked by the East Area Rapist. 
and like so many survivors, she was relieved when he was arrested. At his sentencing, former Sacramento County Sheriff Investigator Carol Daly, who Jane recalls as being positive and supportive and was integral in the East Area Rapist investigation, read the victim impact statement of Kathy Rogers before Judge Bellman. She characterized him as the ultimate predator, who felt superior, stalking, then controlling her. Quote, I have never thought of myself as a victim, although it is part of my history. I did not let his temporary control of me control the outcome of my life. Today, I am blessed with a husband who is my best friend. I feel fortunate that life has been good. I feel my best revenge is to live my life. The monster has been unmasked and is no longer of any consequence. I am leaving him behind. The nightmare is ended, and he is the one who is forever alone in the dark. End quote. Uplifting, inspirational, she has moved on and left this jerk in the distant, dark past, locked behind bars. Now, back in 1976, Jane had no idea that a monster was out there raping women or that he had been stalking and watching her for days, weeks, possibly months. She followed a morning routine like we all do, never thinking about the possibility of a home invasion. Now, on a normal day, Bill would head off to work. Jane would then get called up. They would do their snuggling. And then she would make him breakfast of, you know, frozen waffles or Cheerios. And inevitably, they'd begin to run late and start rushing around so he could go to daycare and Jane could get off to her classes. Around 4 p.m., she'd circle back to pick up her son and make dinner for Bill. And why this sounds really simple, the truth is it was quite a hectic juggling a lot of balls every day kind of thing. But the day of the rape was not a normal day. Paul normally did not wake up and jump into bed before Bill departed. Jane would go wake him up like 30 minutes or so later. So this realization was disconcerting. Had the rapist known this? Had he waited for a morning when Paul did join her early? Had his stalking and watching and plotting been this elaborate? And these questions were mulled over and over with no answers coming. At the time Frozen in Fear was published in 2014, the East Area Rapist had not been apprehended. But what was true by that time and when the book came out is that Ear would never be tried for the rapes he committed due to the statute of limitations, which had long expired. Depending on where you lived, it could be six to ten years. But unlike rape, murder has no time limitations, and he could be held accountable for murders. And we know he was because he is behind bars for the remainder of his life. I will get back to this point, however. Hold on to it. Jane waited 38 years to write her book, but she shared that she immediately considered writing one called Who Was It? Who Raped Me? Who was the vicious pervert who invaded innocent people's homes, raped 50 women, and killed 13 people? Who was this psycho who needed to degrade, humiliate, and terrorize? Who was this brutal lunatic who went from violent rape to violent murder? Well, she didn't know, nor did law enforcement. And this caused Jane to look at every male out there wondering, 
Was he the grocery clerk, the delivery man, the student, the neighbor, the teacher, bartender, mechanic? He could be anyone creating a sensation of walking on eggshells, constantly looking over one's shoulders. There were clues. His athletic prowess, leaping over fences, his tying sophisticated knots, his fluidity in attacking at varying times, and his ability to escape without capture. Jane pondered that he could be in law enforcement, possibly a former officer, or maybe a special forces trained soldier. So realize, Jane and Bill are in the military. And you wonder, is my rapist in the military too? Military families move around a lot, so you'd never escape the wondering, looking at all the male soldiers you came into contact with. Is it him? Could it be him? And the description of this rapist also varied, although the vast majority agreed he spoke through clenched teeth to disguise his voice, wore the mask, and carried a gun or a knife as a weapon. Victims were asked a gazillion questions, trying to identify some link between them and some overlap which might indicate where their paths crossed with the perpetrator and perhaps identify his occupation. Where had the victims gone to school, been employed? Which restaurants, bars, or other establishments did they frequent? Which churches did they attend? And ties to the military were all explored. A few intangible threads were found, but nothing to really connect them that was highly significant. Jane writes, quote, The nameless, faceless criminal that raped so many and murdered a dozen people can only be identified today by his DNA, which is collected through semen and hair at some crime scenes, end quote. And she was spot on correct. Now, Jane's book has been dedicated to retired Costa Contra detective Larry Crompton, who authored Sudden Terror, a book on the Golden State Killer, which I read back in 2017. Really good book. Jane cites Crompton's description of the East Area Rapist in an effort to help identify the rapist turned killer. It's lengthy, but I think it's necessary to help us recall what we knew then versus what we now know. Probably white, fair to light olive complexion. Five foot nine, five foot eleven, hundred and fifty to one hundred and seventy pounds. So think sixty-eight to seventy-seven kilograms. Dark hair and eyes, possibly a bull tattoo on forearm. Ski mask, gloves, dark clothing, long sleeves. Tennis shoes or military-style boots. Selection of single-story homes with a sliding glass door. Attacking under the cover of darkness, midnight to 4 a.m. Children and dogs are not a deterrent. Began attacking single females, evolving into attacking couples who had gone to bed. Talking through clenched teeth. Flashlight beam to the face of victims. States he wants money and food. Threatens with gun. Knife pressed to skin, a forty-five or three fifty-seven. Brought ligatures using shoestrings, twine, or cord. Female victim ordered to tie male's wrist behind the back. Bound female wrists behind back, ankles tied together. Retying male's wrists very tightly. Covered victims' heads or blindfolded with towel. Separated male and female, moving her to another room to rape sometimes sodomizing, sometimes oral sex. Place dishes or similar object on male's back, 
threatening that if it's sound, he'll kill them all, sexually assaulting female victims several times. Repeated threats to kill, says motherfucker or bitch. Asks for money, robbing items of little value. Lubricates himself with lotion. Masturbates when unable to maintain an erection. Cries and curses, I hate Bonnie. Hangs out in the kitchen, eating and drinking. And left victims tied in ligatures. And this gives you the idea of what happened during these 50 rapes the rituals he conducted in assaulting these women. Now, spoiler, as I've said, this serial rapist would evolve into a murderer. And you probably knew this was coming because I do love my research. But briefly, from a variety of scholarly works, from researchers Groth to Barbary, there's a general agreement that there are four basic types of serial rapists and each becomes increasingly more aggressive, as you see, as I will describe them. Statistically, the most common serial rapist is the power reassurance rapist, representing about 80% of sexual assaults. Opportunistic, they are sometimes described as being apologetic, almost gentlemanly, and will use just enough verbal or physical force to overcome the victim's resistance. Generally insecure, The assault is a manifestation of a fantasy that they believe will restore their virility. They believe their rapes are consensual, so they are completely deluded. According to the National Center of Women and Policing, these rapists are isolated, lack social skills, are underachievers, and rarely physically robust. They may commit their crimes by burglarizing, robbing, or kidnapping. The power assertive offender, while still insecure, will come across as if he is supremely confident. His motivation is to possess, not necessarily harm his victims, but unfortunately he may wind up harming them anyway. Feeling inadequate with women, this guy is controlling, selfish, prideful about his appearance with a huge ego. So envision the worst stereotype of toxic masculinity. Impulsive and opportunistic, they may see some chance social encounter as an opportunity to show that they're manly men and will rape, and they may abuse alcohol or drugs. 44% of rapes fall into this category. You'll notice that they can overlap these categories. That's why we're already at 120%. Third type, having explosive personalities, the anger retaliatory rapist rages, choosing victims that they can substitute for someone who has angered them for real or perceived wrongs. He is off on a mission to injure those who have hurt him. They can cause significant physical injury to their victims. Those who know this guy will say he has a dark side, and often they attack in a blitz pattern where they subdue with excessive violence, overwhelming their victims. And finally is the anger excitation predator, who is the most aggressive, statistic, and calculating. Often using restraints and blindfolds, Having control over the victim is paramount, and the suffering of the victim is immensely gratifying. This offender has sexually aggressive fantasies, and their goal is to inflict physical and psychological pain on their victims with the goal of possibly killing the victim. And this type is represented in about 5% of all rapes. So considering Larry Crompton's description of this rapist, and then the four types I have described, 
Which of these four types, power reassurance, power assertive, anger retaliatory, and anger excitation, seems to hit closest to the mark? Take your time. Just hurry up. (laughs) Oh, boy. I believe ear has the traits of both the anger retaliation and anger excitation rapists, which I see as part of his evolution as a rapist and how he escalates as time goes forth. In an interview with Mercury News in 2018, Paul Hulls, a now-retired investigator and scientist at the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Department, said, quote, Most certainly, if he's made the statement, I hate you, Bonnie, while he's attacking another female, he is what we call an anger-retaliatory rapist. I don't know what made him that way, but you've got to think that Bonnie dumped him, and he's not happy about that, and he still has feelings for her, end quote. Well, we now know that Bonnie is the convicted killer's ex-fiance, who dumped his perverted ass after their engagement announcement back in 1970. She dodged one huge one, deciding not to marry this guy. And I will get to Bonnie, I promise. So Jane Carson Sandler writes, quote, As the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King once said, Faith is taking a first step even when you don't see the whole staircase, end quote. Recovering and reconstituting after rape takes time, patience, and is an agonizing process characterized by two steps forward and one step back. After questioning every reaction a victim has had, after delving into the whys, satisfactory answers elude them. Now this causes self-esteem to plummet, shame and embarrassment fly off the charts, and moving into their heads without paying rent. Jane remained afraid. The rape had happened in her home, and her assailant knew where she lived. Would the rapist come back? Her husband was afraid as well, and neither would get a decent night's sleep for months in spite of the amazing alarm system that they installed, complete with a panic button on the headboard for quick access. The whole family, Jane, Bill, and little Paul, slept together for weeks, clinging to each other for security. But they were not the only ones living with fear. The entire Sacramento community was on edge. Law enforcement had taken note. Helicopters hovered over neighborhoods with a spotlight looking for the serial rapist. The headlines read, quote, Man hunted as a suspect in eight rapes. Rapist strikes again. Twelfth time in 15 months. East Area Rapist claims 15th victim. Rapist hits 17th victim. East Area Rapist attacks number 23. Gun sales skyrocketed, as did deadbolt purchases. Self-defense classes filled up. Public meetings were held to advise the community on how to protect themselves. After the 21st rape was reported, a group of volunteers organized the East Area Rapist Surveillance Group, which patrolled their neighborhoods at night. Rape after rape seemed to be happening, with this invisible specter moving seamlessly from assault to assault. He attacked most often in the middle of the night when people were asleep, breaking in silently. He had an effective routine of jimmying open the windows days before he would attack, gleaning information about the family routine, comings, 
goings, and upcoming plans. He likely used a wrench and a crowbar. He relished the pain, the humiliation, and the frustration of husbands, boyfriends, friends, and family who were tied up and had to listen to him inflicting pain as he raped their loved ones. One day, as Jane was recovering, she ventured into a military wives' soiree at the home of a member, and the conversation turned to the serial rapist. One wife stated that he was cutting off nipples, which Jane knew was completely untrue, and that such misinformation only ratcheted up the collective fear. And Jane wanted to correct her, but she did not. That would expose her identity as his fifth victim, and she did not want to be known as a rape victim. Rape victims not disclosing was not uncommon in the 70s, and like I've said, it kind of is still true today. Years later, Jane would tell writer Michelle Roldan Shaw that discussing rape in the 70s was a taboo subject. Quote, After the attack, I was so ashamed I didn't want to tell anyone. But if you keep it inside, it's going to fester and make you physically and emotionally ill. End quote. Listen, I can understand this, and I can see how she couldn't seem to get away from the topic of rape, even just by socializing with friends, and given the increasing number of rapes occurring. It had to be so painful, churning up the anxiety and the fear all over again, continuing to reopen that wound. And we'll see if she was 100% right that this is going to be a long-range consequence for Jane. And this is where I'm going to wrap up Part 1, Survivor Mode, on Frozen in Fear, The True Story of Surviving the Shadows of Death by Jane Carson Sandler. In two weeks, I will be back with Part 2, Survivor Voices, continuing to tell Jane's story while hearing from the other survivors of the East Area Rapist. If you would like to make a donation to Hope Haven of Low County Child Advocacy and Rape Center in Buford, South Carolina, there is a link on my blog. And my next book is not going to be announced today. I'm being all mysterious. There's a few things that I have to work out on speaking with the author, but I have a plan, so stay tuned. Thank you for listening, Murder Bookies. I see you as you hear me. Hey, it's 2024. It's January, so please take a few minutes to write an awesome review that will help me make new Murder Bookies. Share your thoughts with me at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com or on Twitter, X, or Facebook and Instagram. You can join Patreon for $4 a month. There's winter designs out on Spreadshop. So get your merch, because Valentine's Day is coming. Oh, they have the cutest teddy bears. <laughs> Links are on my blog. You know where that is, at www.murdershelfbookclub.com, with all of my sources, photographs, show notes, our snack recipe, and our wine pairing, too. Always trust your gut and lock your doors and windows. Written and produced by Jill. All rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosena and lyrics by Otto Harbach. <laughs>